Well, we're going to have the rest of our main Bible reading. Uh, so we've had 1 Kings 3, and the concluding part is 1 Kings 4. So if you'd like to follow... says this, 1 Kings 4. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Eli uh, Horef and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoraram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Dekah in uh, Makaz, Shalbim, uh, Beth-Shemesh and Elon-Beth-Hanan. Beth-Hased in Araboth, to him belong Soko and all the land of Hepha. Ben-Abinadab in all Nahath-Dor, he had Tapath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Ahilud, in Tanakh, Medigo. And all Beth Shean, that is beside uh, Zerathan below Jezreel, and from Beth Shean to Abel Meholah, as far as the other side of Jokmiam. Ben Geber in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jar, uh, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, and he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Ido, in Mahanaim, Ahimaz in Naphtali, he had taken Basmath, the daughter of Solomon, his wife, Bana, the son of Hushai, in Asher, and Beeloth, Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua, in Issachar, Shimai, the son of Ella, in Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, the country of Shihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle a hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifshath to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Bathsheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, 
each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, uh, and Heman, Calco and uh, Dada, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that uh, together. Uh, just to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. So if you find that helpful, do make, uh, to make notes or just to keep track of where we are, then do make use of that. Also, at the end of the meeting, there will be an opportunity to um, ask any questions or make any comments. So I mentioned that now, so you can be thinking um, thinking as we go through. Um, so there we go. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll have a look at this uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to look at your word, and we pray that we would be those who would pay close attention to it, that we would get to know you as you have revealed yourself. And we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> now, you don't need to know much about Christianity to know that Jesus is the king. But where does the idea of a king come from? I mean, in many ways, God's people haven't always had a king. Now, the first king was... Saul. And actually, his appointment uh, was far from uh, noble origins. I mean, his appointment largely came from Israel's desire to want a king, just like the nations. So we might think that a king is a borrowed concept from the world that is characterized by opposition against God. Yet, at the same time, God promises to David that he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That will mean either there's going to be an unending succession of kings on David's throne, or that one day a king will be enthroned who will rule forever, although there's no mention of that. And all of this is what we're seeing in the book of Kings. One Kings continues the theme of succession to the throne of David. It was a theme that occupied much of the last chapters of 2 Samuel. And last week, if you recall, uh, we saw that David ready to die, or with David ready to die, that it will be Solomon, Bathsheba's son, and not Adonijah, who will be his successor. 
But where does the idea of a king come from in the Bible? Does it start with David and the promises made to him? Well, it's in 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon prays. And it's a humble prayer. Let's pick it up from 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Solomon acknowledges his inexperience and lack of knowledge for such a mighty task of governing uh, the whole people of God. And so he prays, verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Solomon requests to discern between good and evil in order to serve his nation effectively. It was back in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam desired the knowledge of good and evil. But it wasn't a noble bid. It was a desire to be like God in a way that God had never intended. Adam's desire to know good and evil was a bid to usurp God, to take God's place and to become the arbiter of such knowledge. Is Solomon repeating the same mistake as Adam? In wanting knowledge of good and evil, is he setting himself up as a rival to God? Solomon's desire is not a desire to be like God, knowing good and evil, in the Genesis 3 sense. Solomon's desire is not to become wise as a means to somehow grasp personal power. Rather, Solomon's desire was a desire for wisdom from God. He asks God for it. It was a proper desire for wisdom to discern an, an already existing reality. So, so Solomon's desire is not to try to create his own reality, but to discern God's. And for that, he humbly asks God for it. Well, as the narrative unfolds, we see the wisdom that Solomon was subsequently given by God. And in 1 Kings 3, 16 to 28, we learn of a ruling that Solomon makes. It was a legal case involving two prostitutes living in the same house who both claim a particular newborn child as their own. Solomon gives instructions that the child be cut in two. The true mother is willing, willing to give up her child, uh, so give her child up alive to another rather than see him die. 
The other woman is happy to have death. Um, to have death deprive the first woman of her son, as it did her. And of course, the identity of the true mother, the one who gives up her child out of love, is thus revealed to Solomon. Now, what we're witnessing here is how the wisdom that Solomon has received from God gives him the ability to distinguish right from wrong and to do justice. Now, he's a king who's able to solve social problems and promote justice and righteousness. Furthermore, look at what we learn um, about uh, King's, uh, uh, Solomon's wisdom. Uh, if you look on to 1 Kings 4, 32, it says here that he, Solomon, also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs are 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and the birds and of reptiles and of fish. Solomon explores and names his creator's world in much the same way that Adam did in the Garden of Eden. That is to say that the wisdom that God gave Solomon was for the purpose of fulfilling the human task of subduing and controlling creation. Genesis 1, 26, 28. Solomon is acting as vicegerent of creation, showing how to exercise dominion. Now, wisdom in the Bible is this category of mastery of the world under God. I mean, today, the world can be used for little more than someone who's smart and savvy, who's streetwise. But the content of biblical wisdom is tied up with promoting justice and righteousness that goes back to the task of ruining the world given to Adam. But where Adam had failed and sought to be wise in his own eyes, here is Solomon doing what Adam should have done. And there's a uniqueness to him. You know, Solomon is not just presented here as someone who's super clever, but there are lots of other super clever people, the kinds of people that might fill our universities. He is a king. He is a head. He is a ruler. So 1 Kings 3 verse 28 and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And the scope of his rule is not actually restricted to Israel. The bounds stretch beyond 1 Kings 4.34, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And yet it is the wisdom of God, the wisdom from God, that en enables him to be such a one. Well, a final observation to make is one that concerns the effects of Solomon's rule. 
and his rule is a dominion of peace. Take a look at 1 Kings 4.24. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides round him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Bathsheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Now the boundaries described here encompass the land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 15:18. And it's described vividly. All Israel and Judah live securely under their own vines and fig trees. You know, Solomon's economic arrangements were not oppressive. His subjects were happy and were prosperous under his rule. And the picture is a glorious one. Solomon acts as the vicegerent of creation, showing not only how to exercise dominion, but then experience blessing. And blessing there is. It compares to the blessing that Adam and Eve had before the fall. For wisdom, well, wisdom is like the tree of life to those who find her. Proverbs 3, verse 18. Furthermore, it was in Genesis 49 that the security and prosperity of the king's rule was predicted. And it's epitomized here in the national security and prosperity that's described under Solomon's rule. Dots are being connected for us here. Adam, the Messiah, the king, are all related concepts. Well, we began by thinking about where the idea of God's king comes from. And by observing the parallels between Solomon and Adam, we've seen that God's king is an Adamic-type concept. Rather than Saul being God's first king, a case could be made that it was Adam. Adam was appointed to be head of humanity. And rather than Adam's failure bringing creation to ruin, God makes his intention clear through the raising up of Adamic figures such as Solomon that he intends to restore his creation through the installation of a second Adam. But before we get carried away with Solomon's success, there are a number of indications that it's not going to turn out well for Solomon. Uh, I wonder what signs uh, you spotted in the narrative. What about the horses referred to in chapter 4, verse 26? Do they merely attest to Solomon's great wealth? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, 16, the king is forbidden for acquiring great numbers of horses for himself. Then what about 1 Kings 3, 1 to 3? Solomon makes an alliance with Pharaoh by marrying his daughter. 
Could this be the author showing us right at the beginning of Solomon's reign what they perceive to be the very root of his later downfall? Are we to understand that the house of the Lord has not yet been built because Solomon's been spending more time building his own palace? And would such misplaced priorities account for why the people are continuing to worship at the high places because of Solomon's delay in building the temple? So while Solomon is clearly placed in Adamic terms, he's not going to fulfill the category and be the second Adam. But along the way, he's helping us to understand the terms of the promise and what God is doing in the world. It helps us to understand what we are looking at and therefore what we are to be looking for. And it wouldn't be till we get to great David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's king is finally installed. He is the second Adam. He has the wisdom of God. The character of his rule is that of justice and righteousness. And his rule brings blessing to his people. Well, let me pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you may have. Heavenly Father, as we continue in the book of One Kings, we thank you for the opportunity it has to reflect on uh, not only the succession of, of Davidic kings, but also this category of kingship. We thank you how um, Solomon is described to help us to make a link, uh, a parallel with Adam. Not only that uh, the wisdom that he asked for is wisdom to rule your world under you. And that his activity is one of subduing creation and that through that rule um, uh, there is uh, your blessing not only to him but to his subjects. And whilst we all know that Solomon uh, would not fulfill that Adamic category, we thank you how it does inform our understanding of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the great privilege we have to live in the time where Great David's greatest son is now enthroned. And that, um, as we think later on, his, he has your wisdom. And his rule is one of justice and peace and brings blessing to us, your people. Uh, we thank you, Father, and we do pray as we continue to get to know you better, we'll be informed by salvation history and know Jesus and submit to him as he truly is. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I mentioned there'll be time now for any questions or comments. I can think of lots of questions you could ask me, which I won't know the answer to. There may be some that I do.
Uh, thank you. Uh, question, uh, when was the book of one kings written and by whom? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, Tom, do you know? I mean, it covers quite a lot of history, um, so it's not going to be any one person. This is someone collating the history of the kings and then putting it uh, together. So this isn't, for example, um, a book like Job, for example, which you know is, is within a lifetime and Job's uh, as a record of his um, story and his engagement with with God, whereas like the book of one, two kings covers such a vast period of time through a whole succession of kings from both the establishment of the kingdom of God to its downfall and subsequent division. Yeah, I can, I can, um, I can check in the commentary for you, um, but otherwise I don't really have anything else to add. Anybody else? Uh, Susie, and then Nikki. Yes. So, yes. So, I think I was just saying there that basically there's a. Um, let's have a look. Yes. Yeah, so, a summary is if you look in 1 Kings 4, um, for you from verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. Um, and I suppose we might be thinking, oh, okay, that's just extensive. You know, his kingdom was big. But it's just picking up on another marker of the significance of lands in the Bible. Because if we go back to, um, I think it's Genesis well, I mean, it's, 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 it's repeated extensively. Genesis 15, 18. Uh, yeah, so if I pick it up, so this is God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. If I pick it up from verse 17. When the sun had got down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Um, so basically, the significance there is, and, and I mean, ultimately it goes back to Genesis 2, because Adam was given the land, he was given the garden. And so we're seeing that part of the promise is the giving of the land. And so again, it's another marker with Solomon now um, having possession of this land. He just said, oh gosh, we're, we're thinking fulfillment of the promises of Abraham. Ultimately, they're a restatement of the God's creation purposes. This is, this is all of a piece. So I think it's just it's trying to read some of these details with sort of biblical significance. 
and this whole idea of sort of land is, is, is one where we just think, oh yeah, it's, let's remind ourselves that this is something that we're, we're looking of and ultimately finds fulfillment in the you know, new creation. So when you get those wonderful descriptions in Revelation 21, 22 of a, of a new heaven and new earth, we think, gosh, that, that is the land that fills that category of which you only see. Um, yeah, does that? So basically, I guess it ties in with the parallels of Solomon and the promises and ultimately with, with Adam. So, all right, cool. Nikki. Interesting. So, question is, were the people at the time made the parallels with uh, Solomon and Adam? Well, it's interesting. So, I was saving this for something, but um, it's, it's not fully developed, but we'll give it a go. So, they just, I'll try this as an answer and see what happens. So, Romans 16... Um, let me just read from 25. It says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. And the puzzle is this, if I can put it this way, is on the one hand, the gospel was promised by the prophets. Um, it was foreshadowed. But yet, Paul can talk about the fact that it was revealed by him. And that which was kept secret has now been made known. So then you kind of think, well, which is it? Is the was the gospel a mystery that's now been revealed, or was it promised and now been fulfilled? Um, and actually, I mean, if we ask your question further on, is did anyone really know what was going on? You know, when you get, when Jesus comes, do people, you know, do people, do people recognise him as the second Adam? What categories are they thinking in? And so I think, I think we can say two things. I think, um, but I take this as a, you know, just as an initial sort of thought. I think on the one hand, I think with seeing eyes, with eyes that know the mind of God, I think you can make those links. And actually, um, you would see the gospel um, uh, prophesied by, by the prophets. It's, it, it's all there. Um, and it raises the issue, well, why did people not see it? And that really says more about them than about that which was written. Um, so that's a comment on people's unbelieving hearts, uh, not knowing God, not knowing his ways. And 
Again, it didn't have to read the Bible very long to see that actually that's not, that's not being unfair to Israel. You know, look at Hosea. People aren't doing very good. Um, people don't know God and therefore they don't recognise the significance of what's going on. So I think... So I think I'm... Yeah, they're the kinds of sort of things I'm, I'm thinking about. It, it, it's there if you, if you can see it. I think that's why the New Testament writers are happy. We'll be having a look at this in Romans when we have a look at the New Testament use of the Old Testament. They're happy to look back and say it's all there to be seen. But yet at the time... Um, I mean, I say that. It's also worth saying there was a remnant who did know God and who were, who were faithful and to know what's going on. So in that sense, it's, you know, there were people who, who understood the significance. And also, I think it's fair to say, certainly people like David, when you look at the um, Psalms, um, and interesting, David's prayer for his son Solomon in Psalm 72, he seems to know very much about the promises of God and therefore who he is and therefore what he's about. So I think there is, there is an understanding. Um, Good, we will, let's uh, leave it there.